And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. Well, good morning. It's very wonderful to have you here with us today. Uh, Today is the last Sunday in Epiphany. And I think since I've joined the staff here at All Saints Church, this is the first liturgical season that I opened preaching and closed preaching. So I thank you, Father Scott, for that opportunity. It's kind of nice to bookend the season that way and gain that experience. Uh, it's, it's hard to believe that we've already been six weeks in Epiphany, and in just a few days we will observe Ash Wednesday. Yet here we are, so carry on we must. Uh, Jesus' transfiguration is recorded by the synoptic authors, marks a pivot in their accounts. It is literally a high point in the life and ministry of Jesus. He was, after all, on top of a mountain when it happened. And it is literarily a high point in the three gospel accounts. From this event onward, Matthew, Mark, and Luke tell the story of Jesus descending the Mount of Transfiguration and making his way to his passion in Jerusalem. In fact, in Luke's account, shortly after the Transfiguration, Luke records that Jesus sets his face to Jerusalem. So this account serves as a hinge within the gospel accounts to move from the joys and victories of Jesus and his disciples to the ostensible defeat at the hands of the Roman Empire and the Jewish leaders. So with that in mind, let us fix our gaze on a mysterious, terrifying, awe-inducing account of one Jesus of Nazareth, Moses, Elijah, and a few disciples for good measure. But a word of warning is we must progress. It's been said that preachers of the gospel should comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. I hope to do the former more than the latter, but if I do both, well, that won't be such a bad thing. Now, something that I think is vital when preaching a passage found in one of the three accounts of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, known as the Synoptic Gospels, is to look at the other two accounts if those authors record them. And when I say synoptic gospels, I'm referring to Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Those three are called synoptic gospels because they can be seen together and displayed in three parallel columns. And what you'll end up noticing is they they tend to record the same events from the life and ministry of Jesus in relatively the same order, though each gospel does have unique material within. By reading the multiple accounts, if possible, one gets a a robust picture of what happened. When it comes to the transfiguration, all three authors record almost the exact same details, but there are some exceptions. For example, all three mention that Jesus takes Peter, James, and John on the top of a mountain, but only Luke tells us that Jesus went up there to pray. Matthew and Mark quote God's voice from the clouds saying, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Luke quotes the voice from the cloud saying, This is my Son, my Chosen One. 
Now, there are valid reasons for the variances, so there's no need to think that two or three of the gospel authors got it right while one got it wrong. And if you're really interested in what accounts for the textual variances, see me when you have trouble sleeping. I'll give you a book. You'll drift right off. <clears throat> All three accounts place the same events before and after our passage uh, of the Transfiguration. It's very neat and orderly when you look at all three accounts. It's sandwiched between Jesus foretelling his death and resurrection at the hands of evil men. At the other, on the other side of the transfiguration is a miracle, a healing of a demon-possessed boy, and an argument uh, about who's the greatest disciple. So all three accounts on this part of the, of the story of Jesus, they're very unified in telling the story. Just before Peter, just before Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up a most holy hike, he tells the disciples, if anyone would be my disciple, they must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow him. Now, that's not an easy teaching. The disciples didn't like it back then, and we don't like it today. We're not big on self-denial. We're even less fans of cross-bearing. And when it's convenient, we'll follow Jesus as long as he's leading us where we already want to go. I think this hard teaching is crucial to understanding what is going on in our passage in the Transfiguration today. Now, there are many ways to preach today's passage. Earlier this week, I received an email from a well-known Anglican blog featuring an article entitled 10 Ways to Preach the Transfiguration Sermon. I was very thankful for the article because I didn't even have one way. And now I have nine years worth of Transfiguration sermons. But we'll leave that for Father Scott. I'll pass the article on to him. Interestingly enough, of the 10 ways, my way is not even on the list. I don't know what that means, but by the end of the sermon, you can tell me. But as it's been said before, so let it be today. What is written is written. So what is my point today? I've got two. The first comes from the only imperative given in our passage. After reaching the top of the mountain with Jesus, Peter, James, and John, I'm sure were feeling really good about themselves. They had seen this movie before. This was not the first time that Jesus had taken the three of them off from the others to witness something great. These three special ones, the inner circle as they have been nicknamed, they were ready for greatness on this day, and they were not disappointed. As they were enjoying the view from above, Jesus' appearance was changed before their very eyes, and his face began shining like the sun. And then two other special, special men in Israel's history, Moses and Elijah, they showed up. Doubtless that the disciples were quite surprised and excited at their arrival. And now the common-looking carpenter from Nazareth appeared in such a way that they could hardly keep their eyes open to take in his glorious countenance. Not only did his face shine brighter than what they could stand, but his clothes became brighter than what they were. This was not the Jesus they were used to walking around with. This was a glorified, divine nature-revealing, awe-inspiring, fear-inducing, terror-filling Jesus. I doubt the warm fuzzies lasted too long on the mountaintop. Many modern translations, fortunately ours that we use for our gospel reading, the ESV doesn't do this, but many modern translations uh, use the phrase, they were filled with awe. The ESV gets it right. They were terrified. 
they were scared out of their wits to be up there. And what were Moses and Elijah doing there? Well, some people think that they were there because they represented the law, Moses, and the prophets, Elijah. But that might not be the most helpful explanation. I think Anglican scholar R.T. France is closer as he notes, they are there rather in their personal and symbolic capacities as figures in Jewish eschatological expectation, eschatological expectation, and as prefiguring aspects of the Messiah's role. Big words, so let me break it down. What this means is that Moses and Elijah play important parts in understanding how God is bringing all things in this world to their conclusion. That's the eschatological part. And in their respective ministries, they each had elements of messianism in them, but not the fullness. That's for Jesus. Upon seeing the transfigured Messiah talking with Moses and Elijah, Peter decided he needed to contribute something to the event. This was, after all, a big deal, and it needed to be recognized as such. Hence his statement, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents, one for you and for Moses and Elijah. But he wasn't getting out of this special event what was intended for him. So God himself had to offer the lesson. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And there is the imperative. For Peter, James, and John... And by extension, for the rest of the disciples then and throughout history, and including us gathered here this morning. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Now, there are only three instances in all four Gospels where God speaks in an audible voice. Two occur in Matthew, at Jesus' baptism, and here in this passage. And God says the exact same thing both times. This is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. The other occurrence is in John 12, when Jesus asks the Father to glorify his name, and the Father responds in an audible voice. So that's it, three times. God does not speak audibly much in the New Testament in the Gospels. We get three instances. So what do we do with this imperative to listen? Akuite autu in Greek. It means to hear him, to pay attention, to obey him. I think it's helpful to turn to the fathers of the church when considering these things. In the 5th century, when the church father, Pope St. Leo the Great, preached this passage, he said about the command to listen, A voice from the clouds said, This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. I am manifested through his preaching. I am glorified through his humility. So listen to him without hesitation. He is the truth and the life. He is my strength and wisdom. Listen to him whom the mysteries of the law foreshadowed and of whom the mouths of the prophets sang. Listen to him who by his blood redeemed the world, who binds the devil and seizes his vessels, who breaks the debt of sin and the bondage of iniquity. Listen to him who opens the way of heaven and by the pain of the cross prepares for you the steps of ascent into his kingdom. Did you notice how Leo ended with an emphasis on Jesus' passion and the cross? There's a reason for that. 
If we keep this command in its context, it means to listen to what Jesus had just told his disciples before he ascended the mountain. That comes in chapter 16. Jesus tells his disciples, the son of man's going to be betrayed into the hands of evil men, killed, but raised again to new life. That was totally confusing to the disciples. They didn't understand a single word of it. Peter tried to rebuke Jesus because the Messiah doesn't die. The Messiah is not defeated. And Jesus then goes on to give them the the threefold pattern of self-denial, cross-bearing, and following. And I think that's what God is telling us today. So we listen to him. Our liturgy reflects this. A few moments ago, we just prayed that God would grant us the strength to bear our cross. We prayed for the strength to die. Now, of course, there is a tension to be held here because we die so that we might be raised. To be a Christian means that we are in the business of death and resurrection. We are to die to the evil one, to the world, and to our sinful desires daily so that in Christ we may be raised to life daily. But this is the way of Jesus. To be sure it is not our way, but it is his way. And so we must listen. We must obey all for love's sake, both his and ours. This aspect of dying to ourselves and our sinful natures that we might live for Christ is not always easy to accept or to see how holistic and all-encompassing it is for our lives. We're very good at compartmentalizing and rationalizing that there are things that we can hold on to. There are things that Jesus is not asking us to give over to him. But that perspective comes from within and seeks not so much to surrender or die as it does to rebel and survive. 20th century German theologian, pastor, and martyr at the hands of the Nazis, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, wrote in his influential book, The Cost of Discipleship, in 1937. And in it, he discusses Jesus' call of self-denial, cross-bearing, and following. If you're not familiar with Bonhoeffer, a bit of context is helpful. He was a brilliant young German theologian before the Nazis took control of Germany. He left his home and studied in New York. He eventually made his way back to Germany to be ordained and help form what is known as the Confessing Church, Christians in Germany opposed to Hitler and the Nazis. He continued to pastor and teach at an underground seminary training future leaders of the Confessing Church. At the same time, he was active in the German resistance movement, and that made him a target for the Nazis. He was arrested and imprisoned by the Nazis in 1943 and was finally executed at Flossenburg Concentration Camp on April 9, 1945, just days before the liberation of that camp and one month before the Nazis would surrender to the Allies. In The Cost of Discipleship, Bonhoeffer says, The cross is laid on every Christian. The first Christ suffering which every man must experience is the call to abandon the attachments of this world. It is that dying of the old man which is the result of his encounter with Christ. As we embark upon discipleship, we surrender ourselves to Christ in union with his death. We give over our lives to death. Thus it begins. The cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life, but it meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. 
It may be death like that of the first disciples who had to leave home and work to follow him. Or it may be a death like Martin Luther's who had to leave the monastery and go out into the world. But it is the same death every time, death in Jesus Christ, the death of the old man at his call. Jesus' summons to the rich young man was a calling for him to die, because only the man who is dead to his own will can follow Christ. In fact, every command of Jesus is a call to die, with all our affections and lusts. But we do not want to die, and therefore Jesus Christ and his call are necessarily our death as well as our life. The call to discipleship, the baptism in the name of Jesus Christ, means both death and life. The call of Christ, his baptism, sets the Christian in the middle of the daily arena against sin and the devil. Every day he encounters new temptations, and every day he must suffer anew for Jesus Christ's sake. The wounds and scars he receives in the fray are living tokens of this participation in the cross of his Lord. It's no exaggeration to say that Bonhoeffer knew well of what he wrote. Thanks be to God for his witness to the Lordship of Jesus in the face of extreme persecution and his witness of what it means to listen to Jesus and his call. But what about us in 2023? We're not resisting Hitler. We're not resisting the Nazis. So how do we listen to Jesus? What does that look like, practically speaking, for us? Well, as I was asking myself this question a few days ago, I had no good example from my own life worth sharing. But I thought of someone who walks among us that's a dear friend to many of us. I thought of John Wilson. He recently shared with me an experience he's had and its impact on his life. So with his permission, I'm going to talk about him today. John has been at All Saints Church for a bit over 20 years. Something that he has not done habitually over those 20 years is use a Book of Common Prayer. For a variety of reasons, he could not find himself picking it up and praying the daily office. He already had his own routines and his own habits of prayer. It was not easy to use. It felt too rigid, a bit too Catholic, perhaps. And for the past three years since I've been on staff, John has worked closely with me in youth ministry. He comes to my office at least once a week, and we've gotten quite close. I've encouraged him to use the Book of Common Prayer, and he refused me. I would say, John, and he would say, do your own thing. Now, one thing if you know about me, if you know me well, I'm a prayer book Anglican. Along with the Bible, the prayer book is my go-to for my spiritual health, devotion, and habit of prayer. So I was determined to change one John Wilson. I was going to convert him, but I couldn't do it. So I laid it down at the feet of Jesus. And I said, I'll get out of your way, Lord. Now, about five or six weeks ago, John came into my office and he told me he had been on this Anglican website and they had a PDF that you could download and print of the daily office, but he couldn't do it. His printer wouldn't work. He didn't know that I had already printed it because I wanted to check it out myself. Looks like this. So I picked it up and I said, you mean this, John? And he said, yes. I said, here, take it. He gladly took it from me. And he said, I'm going to do this for the next 30 days. It'll be my Lent devotion. I said, John, it's not Lent. He said, that's okay. I'm going to start early. 
And so he started to pray the daily office. And I was cautiously optimistic. I was like, this is it. It'll work. But I was also a little pessimistic. I was like, John's, he's been hard over the past few years. He won't give in. Well, about, I don't know, 10 days ago, a week ago, he came into my office and he sat down and he looked at me and he said, I think I'm becoming an Anglican. I said, what do you mean, John? He said, I'm praying the daily office and it's doing something to me. I said, what do you think about that? He said, I don't know, but I need to be doing it. So now he texts me almost every morning sharing wonderful insights that Jesus is giving him from the daily readings. And now I'm like, man, I need to get with John and pray the office, pray by myself, and I need to get with him. He's loving it. We'll get there. Here is someone who's been following Jesus for decades, someone who is spiritually mature, someone who has discipled other people, someone who served on our vestry, someone who served Jesus in more ways than I can count, and he still finds himself being challenged to listen to Jesus and follow him wherever he may lead. You see, listening to Jesus is as much about being obedient in the small and mundane things in life as it is in the great and lofty things. For John, there was a death involved in laying down his opposition to praying the daily office. And that's not something that's going to make the news today. But for him, it was life-changing. The challenging thing about Jesus is that he's challenging. And that doesn't matter if you're 15 or 40 or 70. Jesus will always be challenging you. He challenges us to give up our ways, our attitudes, our desires, our fears and anxieties, our habits, our successes and failures, even our very lives so that we might take up his ways, his desires, his habits, and his life. And this doesn't matter if you've been a Christian for six months or for 50 years. Jesus will say the same two words, follow me. So where is he challenging you? Where is he calling you to himself? Where is he challenging me? Where do we need to listen to him? And we do need to listen as individual followers and as the body of his son, Jesus. In our parish newsletter this week, it contained a link to a statement put out by Archbishop Foley Beach regarding what happens when collectively we do not listen to Jesus. Recently, we've witnessed an entire national church yet, yet again fail to listen to Jesus. About 10 days ago, the Church of England, the mother church in Anglicanism, voted at its general synod to move forward in drafting prayers for blessing same-sex marriage. This decision has the potential to split the Anglican communion in ways that once seemed unimaginable. The writing was on the wall that this would one day become a reality. It didn't happen overnight. But somehow, it seems almost unbelievable that the church that was the home to such holy men like Thomas Cranmer, Nicholas Ridley, Lancelot Andrews, George Herbert, 
John Wesley, John Newman, John Newton, Charles Simeon, William Temple, C.S. Lewis, and Michael Ramsey would be so terribly deceived and walk on the way that is broad and leads to destruction in the name of justice, equity, and love. Loved ones, let us not find ourselves in such a mess. No matter the cost, no matter what it takes, give your heart over to God. Make it your aim every day to deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow Him. This is the only way of life for the Christian. Everything else will lead us astray. Only Jesus can lead us in the way of life that leads to eternity with God. The result of such obedience is my second point, and it's the second part of what our colleague today asks, that we would be changed in his likeness into his likeness from glory to glory. We will become like Jesus, for this is God's desire and delight, that we would have a share in his glory. But rather than think of yourself in this way, Apply it to the one who is sitting next to you or near you. Apply it to the one who lives near you, who works with you. Think not of yourself. Think of your neighbor. I'll give C.S. Lewis the last word today from his sermon, The Weight of Glory. Meanwhile, the cross comes before the crown, and tomorrow is a Monday morning. A cleft has opened the pitiless walls of the world, and we are invited to follow our great captain inside. The following him is, of course, the essential point. That being so, it may be asked what practical use there is in the speculations which I have been indulging. I can think of at least one such use. It may be possible for each to think too much of his own potential glory hereafter. It is hardly possible for him to think too often or too deeply about that of his neighbor. The load or weight or burden of my neighbor's glory should be laid daily on my back, a load so heavy that only humility can carry it, and the backs of the proud will be broken. It is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses, to remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature which if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship, or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long we are in some degree helping each other to one or other of these destinations. It is in the light of these overwhelming possibilities, it with the awe and circumspection proper to them, that we should conduct all our dealings with one another, all friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, culture, art, civilization, these are mortal, and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit immortal horrors, or everlasting splendors. This does not mean that we are to be perpetually solemn. We must play. But our merriment must be of that kind, and it is in fact the merriest kind, 
which exists between people who have from the outset taken each other seriously. No flippancy, no superiority, no presumption. And our charity must be a real and costly love, with deep feeling for the sins in spite of which we love the sinner. No mere tolerance or indulgence, which parodies love as flippancy parodies merriment. Next to the blessed sacrament itself, your neighbor is the holiest object presented to your senses. If he is your Christian neighbor, he is holy in almost the same way. For in him Christ, the glorifier and the glorified, glory himself, is truly hidden. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.